Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome everyone to the uh, Pratt Library Wheeler Auditorium for uh, the latest in our series of author lectures. I think this will be a particularly interesting one tonight. Um, I'm Bob Burke. I manage the Social Science and History Department downstairs, which has the major part of our Civil War collections. I'm proud to add that we do have copies of our uh, honored guests' books in the department as well, and uh, it's really a great read. Um, our guest speaker this evening is historian and lecturer Harry Ezradi, who will be discussing his most re recent book, Baltimore in the Civil War, The Pratt Street Riots and a City Occupied. Um, I thought, just to kind of get people in the mood, um, I'd tell you a little story about two brothers uh, whose last name was Pratt, not Enoch Pratt, uh, but Jabez Pratt and John Pratt, two brothers who were born in um, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Jabez Pratt came to Baltimore in the 1840s, and he made a lot of money as a lawyer, uh, married a woman named Lucy, had a family, four sons, the eldest of whom was named uh, Joe. Um, his brother John, younger brother John, stayed in Boston, uh, did quite well in business and real estate, also had a family of four. Now, John kept up with developments um, in Baltimore and in Maryland. It was April of 1861, and John was understandably a little bit concerned about what was going on in the city of Baltimore, so John wrote his brother and said, look, I see what the situation is. If you'd like to bring your family back here to Boston where they'll be safe, we have room for them. Now, you might wonder under the circumstances, how would Jabez respond to his brother? Well, this was his response. My dear brother, I've received your dispatch, and while I thank you for your kindness in the offer, we, both Lucy and myself, are not disposed to run, much less into the arms of infernal abolitionism. <laughs> Let any more northern troops attempt passage of this city, and not one will live to tell the story. We are not to be subjugated by Lincoln and his hordes. I've just got arms, and Joseph and myself intend to do what we can, be it ever so little. If he would not fight, I would disown him. Now remember, this is somebody who was born in, in Boston speaking here. They might wonder, now how did John respond to his brother? Well, John said, my dear brother, I've just received your letter, and I need hardly say that I am pained at its contents. The manner in which you treat my invitation that you would send your wife and little ones to my care where they would be out of danger is cruel and unkind. The time will come, I it will, sooner than you believe, when you will be proud to proclaim yourself a son of Massachusetts. If Baltimore is a yawning gulf to bury northern troops in, the same gulf will bury the last vestige of your beautiful city. Before this contest ends, a full, safe, and unobstructed passage will be opened for our troops to the capital. So it tells you a lot about the depth of feeling, because you have to remember, we're not talking about street thugs. We're not talking about members of mobs. You know, Baltimore has the reputation of being mob city going back to the 1840s and 50s. We're talking about members of what in the 1960s would have been referred to as the establishment. We've got a lawyer, and we've got somebody who's working in real estate, and yet the same passions that envelop the general populace of Baltimore envelop these two individuals as well. 
So it's something to keep in mind. Anyway, let's have a warm Baltimore welcome for Harry Ezratty as he describes the Pratt Street riots and their impact on Baltimore and the Civil War. Harry Ezratty. You can tell by my accent that I'm not a native Baltimorean. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Because when I came to live in Baltimore, I was meeting with natives and we discussed Baltimore history. History is a passion of mine. And I found out that most people didn't, most Baltimoreans didn't know anything about the Pratt Street riot. And I thought it was fascinating, not only for the riot, but for the aftermath of the riot. And so I sat down and started to do a lot of research on, the, on what happened. And I was absolutely fascinated. Uh, so uh, put it in this book called Baltimore and the Civil War and the City Divided. And uh, what I'd like to do before we go into the riot itself, which is really a small part of the whole situation that arose because the aftermath of the riot was devastating both for the Constitution of the United States, Baltimore, and the rest of the country. So let's talk a little bit about what Baltimore was like before the riot so you can understand what the riot was about, why it happened, and how even it could have been avoided. Baltimore at the uh, eve of the Civil War was either the third or the fourth largest city in the United States, depending upon whose statistics you followed. It was a major manufacturing center. The Jones Falls was one of the first areas in the United States where the Industrial Revolution took hold. They milled flour. They made the canvas for sailing ships, and they did a lot of other manufacturing on the Jones Falls. Uh, it was a major port, and it was an industrial area. And it was, for the South, because Baltimore was in Maryland, and Maryland was a slave state as part of the South. It was the largest industrial city in the South. To the north of Baltimore, another slave state, the sister state, Delaware. And to the south was Virginia. West Virginia had not yet broken away from, the, from uh, Virginia, which happened during the war, so the, all the area going out toward Hagerstown, that area which is now West Virginia, was Virginia. So Baltimore was in the South. And when the war started, obviously the southern, the southern fomenters of the war wanted Baltimore to become part of the South because they needed its industrial, and its, 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 its industrial capacity and the fact that it was a very, very large seaport. And so when South Carolina started the war, by bombarding the fort, Fort Sumter. Lincoln was in Washington with less than 10,000 troops in the middle of the South. The capital of the United States was 35 miles south of Baltimore in the middle of the South. And Washington understood its position and Lincoln understood Washington's position and so he called for 75,000 troops to come and defend the South 
to make sure that Washington didn't fall. Now, it's interesting because in, in the, um, the request that Lincoln made, he indicated that he was very certain and he was very positive that he knew that he could not bring the southern states back that had already seceded. About seven southern states had already seceded. And the only one that was, the one that was open that we in Baltimore were looking at, or Maryland was looking at, was Virginia. So on the 12th of April, 1861, Fort Sumter fell, and Lincoln and Washington were behind the lines. And so the call went out for 75,000 men. Among the 75,000 was a group of soldiers and militia living in um, Massachusetts who were descendants of the Minutemen, came from the same town, Lexington and Concord, Acton, uh, and those places. They came and answered the call. And they uh, came down from, from Boston on a train. Now, there were several several things that we know that could have avoided the, the Pratt Street riot. The first thing, first thing was that everybody knew that when these soldiers came to town, there was going to be a problem. Because they didn't want Yankee soldiers in Baltimore who would be destined to fight against the South. Even though they realized they were only going to Washington, they didn't want Yankee soldiers. Mayor Brown wrote to the president, wrote to the head of the railroads and told them not to bring soldiers here. That was dismissed. Marshal Kane, who was the head of the police, also wrote to the, to the uh, railroad people not to bring any troops in, but that was, was dismissed. There were groups of southern organizations that had met days before the soldiers came to Baltimore on the 19th of, was one week after Fort Sumter fell, 19th of April. They met and they passed resolutions that they would not permit soldiers to come through Baltimore. Everybody knew there was going to be a problem. The day before the riot, a group of soldiers came from the north, from New York, and from Philadelphia. The soldiers from New York were regular army, and they marched off without a problem to Fort McHenry. The Philadelphia militia were unarmed, and un they had no uniforms. They had a little bit of a problem. Uh, Marshal Kane, who was the head of the police, came and surrounded them and marched them off to the, to the train, and they were fine. They had no, there was some throwing of rocks, somebody got hit on the head, but basically there was no problem. Now, what was the, what was the, the logistics of how you, you brought a man to Washington? The city of Baltimore in 1830 passed a law there would be no railroad trains moving in the city of Baltimore. So what happened is that when people came from outside Baltimore, they stopped at President Street Station, they stopped at Washington Street Station, they stopped at the, at the area on Calvert Street where the Baltimore Sun, there used to be a railroad station there where Lincoln came through, um, and a few others. There was one up by, um, up in um, 
near the, near, near the uh, where the where the art school is. Uh, is that my, is that uh, yeah right okay. So the, what they would do is they would stop, and they would have to get a cab or some other means of uh, of, of location and they uh, of locomotion, and then go to Camden Street where the B&O had the railroad that went to Washington. It was the only railroad that went to Washington. It was the only railroad that went south. Everything else came from the north. Everything else had to move to Camden Street Station, where the ballpark is now, and go south. That's the problem. Now, what they, what they did was, as the troops were coming down from Philadelphia, which was the last stop that these troops from, from Massachusetts on the 19th had made prior to getting to Baltimore, there was a message sent by wireless into the train, there was going to be trouble. And Colonel Jones, who was the head of these uh, 750 soldiers from Massachusetts, told the men to load their, pistol, load their rifles, and you had to put a ramrod in the rifle in those days, it wasn't an automatic rifle, the ones that we know, put a little ball powder and then put the ramrod in and be ready to defend yourselves but not to start an action only if you were attacked would you return fire. Along with the Massachusetts volunteers was about 1,200 Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, from all over Philadelphia and the rest of Pennsylvania, also unarmed and without uniform. And they pulled into the President Street Station. And when they got there, they were supposed to march up President Street until they got to Pratt Street. And if you can remember, if you can, you go, this is, you walk up President Street, you make a left and go along Pratt Street, and then get to Camden Yards and Marktown. Just a perfect box. When they got to the yard, when they got to the the President Street, they found out that they would be taken over by trolley. There were tracks running from the President Street Station, railroad tracks, that ran up across that route that we just spoke about. And there were wagons pulled by, by horses that took the men, or that, was, that were planning to take the men to go over. Now, this is a big mistake. If the, men had, if the men had marched with uniforms and with rifles at the ready, they would have been jeered, they would have, might have been attacked, but I don't think that would have happened the way it did on that day. What happened on that day was that the men were waiting at the President's Street Station to load on 33 different railroad cars. And as they were waiting, they were attacked. People threw rocks at them. People threw bottles at them at the President Street station. As they got in and they started marching, started moving up, nine cars started up along the route, and they were stopped when they made the turn on Pratt Street. There was that morning men working, laying down cobblestone streets and fixing the tracks and working along the pier. The mob took sand, cobblestones, sledgehammers, picks, axes, and threw them along the railroad tracks so that the cars could not move. What happened was 
that eight cars got through. And the ninth couldn't because by the time the ninth got up to where the Jones Falls comes under the uh, under Pratt Street, someone th sailors dragged two anchors over and threw them on the imagine two anchors and threw them on the railroad tracks, and they couldn't go any further. So Captain Follinsby, who was in charge of the of the ninth yard of the ninth uh, car, went back and took the ones who were waiting, because there were some other troops waiting, and he went forward with about 100, about 75 troops marching. He was told by Colonel Jones, who found out that he couldn't make it, you are to march along the route of the railroad track and get to Camden Yard. So the men get their rifles, and they come and they're ready. Now, the, the 1,200 Philadelphia or Pennsylvania troops they got back on the train and went back to Philadelphia. With, with the 750 soldiers, there was the marching band. And Colonel Follinsby wisely decided that he would leave the marching band behind and not take them with him because they carried instruments, they didn't have rifles, they didn't have any equipment, and they had to carry you know, uh, musical instruments. They were unarmed. He didn't think that that, that would be a good thing to do. So Follinsby goes back to President Street, drops the car, picks up the rest of the men that are waiting, and they start marching by foot. Every foot along the way, they are met by bottles, bricks, clubs, people busting into the line. But there's no, there's no rifle fire yet. It's quiet in terms of that. They get to Pratt Street and make their left turn. And they start going along. And all of a sudden, all hell broke, broke loose for two reasons. The eighth car of the eight that pulled through, the last car got run off the track. The horse, the horses that were pulling it, broke away and run out, ran off. And so the colonel or the, the captain that was in that, in, that, uh, in that car told his men to lay on the floor because now the mob got crazy and started firing. And he said to the conductor, get, that, get those two horses and put them back. And the conductor said, I'm not going out there and doing that. He pulled out his pistol and put it to the head of the conductor and said, you will, which the conductor promptly did. They, licked, they linked up the horses to the car and proceeded with rifle fire all the way until they got to um, Howard Street and they had to make a turn down at Howard Street to go to Camden Yard. At Howard Street, a mob had preceded them and ripped up the rails. So they couldn't go any further. They could not go any further. And so they got out, armed with the rifles, and started going down to Camden Yards where Colonel Jones with the seven cars in front of him were already there on a train waiting to go to Washington. Follinsby is now marching across. And Follinsby is now being met with fire and he's being met with clubs, and he's being, and it's, it's getting very, 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 very difficult. And Follinsby is ordering his men to fire back into the crowd. Twelve civilians are killed. And finally, when Follinsby gets to the area where, where you know the fountain is uh, over by one of the, um, one of the, 
one of the food marts in the in the harbor. There's a well, not too past the the constellation, not too far past that. They descend upon Falamsby's men and kill four of them. They club one to death. One is uh, dies because he gets hit on the head with a brick, and two is shot. And Fallensby now is proceeding at march time, and he's running the rest of the way. Now, it sounds like a mob, like a, a mob out of control, but it isn't. It isn't. There are merchants. There are lawyers. There are people who have federal jobs. There's the upper class of Baltimore together with the roughnecks. One of the people who wrote a little bit of a description tells us that he came to the, to the riot with cartridges in his pocket and that somebody next to him grabbed a rifle from one of the soldiers and said, I don't know how to put the cartridge in here, and he, this man put the cartridge in. He was a merchant. The man who was holding the rifle and fired it was a federal employee, uh, uh, one of the federal employees, and he was just, you know, unbelievable. There were lawyers involved. One lawyer got shot in the leg and almost lost his leg. And so they finally got to the railroad yard. He got on the train. And they killed the last man, a man by the name of Brown, who was a very well-known merchant. And that, that really angered the people of Baltimore because they felt that he had nothing, he, had nothing, he wasn't involved in doing anything that uh, anyone would want to shoot him for. And so that was the riot. If the riot occurred on that day and ended on that day, it would have been a little note. It was the first death in the Civil War because it fought something. Nobody died. Despite 3,000 mortars and cannons going back and forth between the two sides, no one was killed. But four soldiers were killed from the Union Army, and there were 12 men killed from the other side. And we believe that one of the soldiers, one of the men that was killed from, in the mob was a, Union, a Confederate soldier who had just signed up to join, in, uh, to join the Confederate Army and was on his way in a couple of days to join the Army in somewhere in the South. So a Southern soldier was killed and four Union soldiers. We think that more than 32 people were injured, and the reason for that is because when they were, when they were hurt, shot, or whatever it was, clubbed, most of the civilians ran away because Marshal Kane came with his cops Marshal Kane came with the cops, with the police, and started arresting some of the rioters. Now, Kane was a dyed-in-the-wool Southern sympathizer, but he had his duty as a police officer, and he had to avoid a riot. So we know for definitely for sure that 32 people were injured, 12 died from the civilian end, and four died from soldiers. Now, if that was the end of it, it would be a footnote to the Civil War, but it's more than a footnote. Why? That night, in Monument Square, where there were two big hotels where people met on a regular basis, the Barnum Hotel and the Gilmore Hotel, the Southern sympathizers started to meet and started 
making speeches about how they were going to defend the South and they weren't going to let these troops, no more troops are coming through. They're writing Lincoln that no more tre- they won't permit troops to go through the South, uh, through Maryland to fight against the South. And a militia of cavalrymen from Baltimore County, from Towson, came down at Marshall Kane's request to help order, to help with the order. And what happened was that they stayed after the troops left and began to wreck every road, every railroad, every bridge leading from the north into Maryland. Complete and total destruction of the transportation system and the wireless system running into Baltimore. So everything that came down from from, uh, Delaware, from Pennsylvania, all that was completely destroyed. The man who was the head of that was a fellow by the name of Isaac Trimble, who was the man who built the President Street Station. He worked for the B&O. He was a railroad uh, architect, one of the most famous in the United States. And by the way, the President Street Station was the largest station in the United States at that time. It was a, it's not what you see today, that little building. It was huge. It went all the way back into, into the, uh, going back almost to Central Avenue. Not that far, but going in that direction. And so Isaac Trimble taught these men how to rip up roads, how to, how to, you know, how to destroy the roads, because he was a railroad uh, architect. And so Lincoln was in trouble. This is why the Pratt Street riot becomes a very, very important incident in the United States. Lincoln was in trouble, and he didn't know what to do. Uh, from reports that we had, you know that Lincoln was... Uh, was uh, prone to have bouts of depression. This was, according to the things that I read in his biographies, one of the most depressing days of his life as President of the United States. He was behind the lines. He had only those 750 troops that came in, many of whom were wounded, and there was no way he's gonna defend the city of Washington with 750 troops. He calls to New York and sends down General Butler who goes down along and he gets, Butler comes down as far as the, as the Tidings Bridge where the Susquehanna River is, and he gets a railroad ferry that goes to Annapolis. And he puts his troops on that, he puts about a thousand troops, he makes a couple of shuttle runs, and he goes to Annapolis and works his way back, he, he fixes the railroad. He fixes the railroad, working his way back into Baltimore. In the meantime, Lincoln suspends habeas corpus and arrests the mayor of Baltimore, Marshall Kane, every reporter and every editor and every newspaper that's pro-sympathy for the South. He arrests judges. He arrests all the sympathetic, southern sympathizing legislators of the Maryland legislature, plus every single citizen who in any way exhibits southern sympathy, without any authorization from Congress, which is required to have. And Lincoln now sees that he can be relieved because on May 13th, Butler comes in on a rainy night. He brings his militia. He brings four cannon. 
and he brings a whole bunch of men, and they climb up Federal Hill in the middle of a thunderstorm, and the rain, thunder, nobody could ever believe that he would climb that hill. And in the morning, the next morning, Baltimore wakes up to find four cannon across the harbor aimed at Monument Square and the business district. And Butler starts arresting anyone he can find who's, pro, who's pro-Southern. So he arrests a fellow by the name of Merriman. Merriman was one of the uh, members of the Towson militia who ripped up the railroads. And he sends a man to, he sends a man to Merriman's house and arrests him. He sends an officer, a federal officer. The order to arrest, Merrill, to arrest Maryland, Merriman is issued by a officer from, uh, a general from Pennsylvania, not from Maryland, not from Fort McHenry. And they arrest him and bring him to court. I'm sorry, they bring him to Fort McHenry. When his lawyers find out, they go to the federal court and ask that he be released because there were no charges filed against him. And the federal judge refuses to do that. So they go, in those days it was much easier than it is today, I can tell you that because I'm a lawyer. They went right to the Supreme Court of the United States. They jumped over two circuits and went right to the Supreme Court of the United States to Justice Tawney. Now, everybody knows who Justice Tawney was. He's the Dred Scott guy, right? <laughs> he was idolized in Baltimore, and he was, in, he was 87 years old at the time. He was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he gets a petition. He gets a petition to release Merriman from the custody of the Federal Army on the grounds that there's no charges against him, and uh, he has to be released. So, Tawney comes to Baltimore. Monument Square, there's a, there's a big federal courthouse there, and he's, he's, as, it, as he gets in, the people, they don't clap, they don't applaud, they take off their hats. They're all awed by this, by this man. And he orders that the general, by the name of Codwallader, who was the head of the, uh, of the army at Fort McHenry, produce... Produce. Habeas corpus in Latin means we have the, give us the corp, give us the body, bring the body. That's what it means, habeas corpus. So he asks Codwallader to bring Merriman to the court. Now this is the Supreme Court of the United States I want you to know, okay? And Codwallader sends a flunky with a letter. And he says... The President of the United States, the Commander-in-Chief of the Army, has ordered me not to produce Merriman. And he said, we are doing this for the good of the country, and the court has to understand that whatever, however it decides this case, it has to decide it with the interests of the country at hand. And Tony is flabbergasted, but Tony has a problem. Tony has a problem. He can't, he can't uphold any order that he makes. But he makes an order that they're in contempt and that they should produce the, they, they should produce the, 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 the captured man or the, the arrested man. 
And he writes an opinion, which if any of you have the opportunity to read, it's called Ex Party Merriman. If you have a chance, go into the internet and read it. It's a, an amazing decision because he tells the President of the United States, you're only voted here for four years. And you can be kicked out of office for malfeasance of duty, which is what this is. You had to go to Congress to get permission to enact habeas corpus, and you haven't done that. Now we're in a constitutional crisis. A riot one day and a constitutional crisis three days later. You know, when Jackson, when Andrew Jackson went into uh, Mississippi, I'm sorry, into New Orleans, and fought the battle of uh, New Orleans, which was the great battle of the War of 1812, one of the, he, one of the judges asked or ordered Jackson to release an editor who had been writing scurrilous items about Jackson. And Jackson arrested him, again, without permission, without any authority. And Jackson said to the judge, you made your order, now enforce it. That's exactly what Lincoln told Tony. Not in those words, but he just folded his arms and ignored the order. By the way, when the war was, when that battle was fought and the British were defeated, the, and he, by the way, he threw the judge out, Jackson threw the judge out of uh, New Orleans. When the judge came back, the judge fined Jackson $1,000, which Jackson paid. <laughs> I thought that was cute. In any event, Lincoln did the same thing. You have the order, now enforce it. Now, how could Tawney enforce it? He, 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 he made an order against the commander-in-chief of the United States who controls the Army, the Navy. No Air Force in those days. So there's no way, and Tawney knew that. But Tawney wrote this, this great, it's a, one of the great decisions. I mean, I, I, it, doesn't excuse, it doesn't let him off the hook for what he did in, in Dred Scott, but it's one of the great constitutional decisions in the United States. And Tawney was very disillusioned, and he sat down to, next to Mayor Brown, and he said to Mayor Brown, this, Brown says this in his, in his memoirs. He says to Mayor Brown, there's a list with all the people that the president is going to arrest. And Tawney says, I'm on that list. Supreme Court of the United States, the Chief Justice, I'm on that list. He said, but they took me off. And then he says to Brown, you're on that list. And of course, several days later, Brown gets arrested. Now what happened was once they had control of the city, with, because if you tried to do anything in the city with respect to uh, an insurrection, you had those, they brought in more cannons and finally built a very big fort up there. Uh, in my book I have uh, drawings of it. I mean it's a real, it's a fort with stone walls and uh, and, and cannon and everything. There's no way that there could have been an insurrection in, in Baltimore. Uh, so Baltimore was firmly in the in the uh, in the uh, in the control of Washington. Now, Washington the next day, after the after this um, riot, two days later, he calls the governor of Maryland and the, and the uh, mayor of Baltimore to come down to Washington. He wants to talk to them about what he can do to bring more troops in, because he hadn't had his troops yet. And uh, you got to remember that 
It wasn't until May 13th, which is almost a month after the Baltimore riots, that, that uh, Butler brings in troops to Washington and to Baltimore. So he sits with the mayor, and the, and the governor didn't come. The governor was very weak. He was one of your weak governors. <laughs> he, was a, he belonged to the Know Nothing Party, if you know what that is. He was a Know Nothing. He went from one end to the other. He vacillated, and he was, he was on the side of whoever was the... In fact, the night that they had those harangues at the, at the Gilmore Hotel and at the uh, Barnum Hotel, he was afraid that he was going to be attacked because he wasn't really firmly on the side of the, of the, pro, the pro Southerners. And he was afraid that he was going to meet with some physical harm. So Lincoln, the, 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 the mayor of Baltimore goes down with uh, two men one of whom was the uncle of the Duchess of Windsor. She wasn't born yet, but she was, she was one of Treacle Wallace was his name. He was a lawyer. And <clears throat> he said, look, I, I have to have troops. You have to let me bring troops into, into Washington. Through, and then the only way I can do it is through Baltimore. And they tell him that it can't be done. And Lincoln says, if it can't be done, we're going to fight our way through. Lincoln was already, he already knew that he had to be tough and that if he had to bring war into Baltimore, he was going to do that. And so Lincoln laid down the law right then and there. And it was the day after they left that he, that he put forth the uh, habeas corpus. They took away habeas corpus and, and put down martial law. Okay. So what did it mean for Baltimore? Well, there were, good port, <clears throat> there were good parts and there were bad parts. For a southern city, Baltimore survived the horror of Savannah, Atlanta, and all the other towns that were burned when uh, Sheridan and Sherman marched through the south. On the other hand, when the war was over, they had no no trading partners any longer because they would trade with Charleston and Atlanta, Savannah, Florida. They weren't in a position to buy anything because there was no money down there. So Baltimore was in bad shape. Uh, the, the economy of Baltimore during the war was pretty good, but it was after the war that they suffered. Now, your um, theme song, Maryland, My Maryland, was written because one of the men who was shot and wounded on that fateful day was a close friend of a Maryland, a Marylander, who was living in Mississippi, teaching, and who found out about it and sat down and wrote, Oh, Maryland, My Maryland, and all of a sudden... It blossomed into a great song, and it was used by the Southern troops as one of their rally, rallying songs. It became a wonderful song for the South. And uh, he thought his friend died, but he, it, later on he found out that he survived a very bad injury in his leg. Lincoln arrested the grandson of Francis Scott Key, because he ran a Southern sympathizing newspaper, he arrested 
the grandson of the major who defended Fort McHenry in the War of 1812, who ordered the flag flown during the night because he had a carpet bag in his house with some Southern literature. Lincoln even sent men to arrest judges and pull them out in the middle of a session where soldiers beat them over the head in order to arrest them. The, thing, the funniest thing that I found, not so funny, but the, the oddest thing that I found was after the war was over and, and, uh, and, and Lee had surrendered at Appomattox, a week or two later, a bunch of two or three southern soldiers were going home and they encountered a Maryland legislator on the street near a hotel and said to him, we are on our way home, we don't have any money. And so he gave each of them a few dollars so that they could travel home in comfort. And he was arrested for aiding the enemy and put in jail two weeks after the war was over. So this was, this, this was the legacy of the, of the Pratt Street riot. It's not so, the riot is, is an interesting riot in and of itself. I mean, for the, I, mean I didn't go into all of the, the details of what was going on minute by minute as I did in the book because I, I think it would bore you. But the, the, uh, the actual riot itself, as I've said several times, was, was an incident. Later on, when they started to draft soldiers, Lincoln knew they were going to have a riot in New York City, and so he went to, the, he went to Congress and he ordered... Congress, or he asked Congress to let him apply military law in all of, in all of the United States that was, that was under the control of the Union Army. All of the United States. Lincoln said, when I put this draft act into, into motion, we are going to have a bloody riot. And they did. They had a riot for one week. It wasn't the same kind of riot that we had here in Baltimore because that was street thugs that were involved there. Those were the people who were going to go into the army. Those were the young kids. And they, they torched New York City and they, I mean, hundreds of people were killed and maimed. So it wasn't anything like the Pratt Street riot. But Lincoln learned. He learned from the Pratt Street riot and ordered the, the, uh, <clears throat> He ordered the, the uh, military law, martial law, in the whole United States, that was every portion of the United States that was, that was, under, terri that was under the territorial uh, uh, power of the, of the U Union Army. Now, what happened to the people who were arrested and all that? Mayor Brown came back. He became uh, chief justice of a circuit court here in Baltimore City. Marshal Kane. Uh, who was a, an interesting guy because, uh, by the way, let's go back to Mayor Brown for a minute. Mayor Brown had been elected in, 19, in 1860, so he was arrested in 1861, and he was released upon the end of his term in 1863 or 1864. He was, before the war was over, he was released. Most of these people were sent to prisons in Massachusetts or in Albany or in other places in New York. Kane was released early and became an agitator 
for like a guerrilla war against the uh, North and uh, went to Canada where he put together a group of people who, um, and got money, by the way, to uh, agitate, but was never successful in that. Um, Harry Gilmore, uh, there were two more attempts to take over Baltimore for the South. The first was uh, a plan that if they would have succeeded at Gettysburg, the South would have marched the 60 miles onto Baltimore. Of course, that never happened. But there was a plan, and may, I don't know if any of you know it, where, uh, where Jubal Early, General Jubal Early, at, at the order of Robert E. Lee, cut through, uh, came over the uh, Potomac River into Maryland, where Hagerstown is, and started to Washington. The idea was to cut Washington off from the rest of the, of the, rest of the country and released, they had about 150,000 captives from Gettysburg at a place in western and eastern Maryland on the, on, the, on the bay, on the Gulf, on the, on the bay. And uh, those soldiers would, the plan was to release the soldiers and arm them with ships that were to come up the uh, Chesapeake and bring in food and armament for these men. Early got to the outskirts of Washington. He got as close as to see Lincoln standing on one of the forts, and they fired at Lincoln. That's how close he got. But he didn't have the release of the soldiers that he needed from, from eastern Maryland, all the way over around the Chesapeake City area, that area. And just where, where the southern part of Maryland runs into the Potomac River, runs out there. It was a huge, a huge prison with about 150,000 uh, Confederate soldiers who had been captured at Gettysburg. And uh, it, it, it was, it, they knew the importance of Baltimore as a manufacturing center because by the time Lee did this in desperation, there were no more foundries in the South. There were no more railroads in the South. They didn't have tracks. They couldn't manufacture armaments. They couldn't make a bullet. So they needed a place like Baltimore where they could manufacture. Of course, it never came off. Um, so uh, Gilmore was, Harry Gilmore was one of the militiamen who came down on the night of the Pratt Street riot with Merriman. He was a corporal at the time, and he was involved in the mayhem and the destruction of all the railroads and the wirelesses that I told you about. He was instructed by Lee to repeat that. And he had a troop of men, and they went all the way up into Towson. They went all the way across. They, they, they did a little bit of mayhem, but not as much as, as Lee wanted. And when they found out, they captured a couple of generals on a train. But when they found out that uh, the whole thing had fallen through, they all retreated and went over the Potomac South, and that was the end of any kind of attempt to get, to get Baltimore on the side of the South. That was in 1864, one year to the day after the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, so a lot of these people, they all came back, uh, the ones who were arrested, and became, you know, uh, 
They became important people in the city of Baltimore. I gave a speech at the mayor, at the city hall, at the at one of the one of the rooms that had the portraits of all these people. It was amazing. It was there was Mayor Brown and Marshall Kane and, and all the other people that were there. But all was forgiven after the war, and it was and it was over. Now the problem was that of course uh, Baltimore suffered until almost the end of the 19th century because of the, of the, of the markets that she was unable to, to, com, to continue with. Um, Lincoln made his last trip. He went once went from his inauguration, he went through B&O Railroad at Camden Yards and he went to do the Gettysburg Address. I tried to find out if he had gone through Camden Yards at any other time but I was unable to find it. He may very well have done it, but the last trip was in a coffin. He came up from Washington, came down, and they had him on a, uh, in a building for, on view just in back of Pratt Street. And uh, that was the last time Lincoln came through Baltimore. 